0: Hey, Forge family. God bless you. This is going to be episode four as we go through the epistle of 1 Peter. And if you recall, he's writing to believers, both former uh, pagans and Jewish people who had settled down in the middle of Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And he, uh, it appears from tradition, that he personally had made that missionary journey, if you will, right up through all those towns and cities. And he remembered those people, and um, he's writing back to them with an intensity about their their faith that's going to be tested. It is now being tested, and more testing has come. He senses that their persecution is rising, and he's sending out this letter to say, uh, hang in there because, and that he lists all the reasons why their salvation by grace through faith in Jesus is anchored. Now, last time we were together on episode 3, we looked at the fact that for Peter, that salvation is anchored to what the prophets said in the Old Testament. They were the ones who were by Holy Spirit, the Lord spoke to them, and they foretold the birth of the ministry, the trial, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Messiah. And for Peter, that, that absolutely is necessary for him to say, my faith is anchored to those prophetic statements, of which there's over 300 of them in the Old Testament. So, Ford's family, our faith is bolted to those promises that God sent. And then he went ahead and kept them. He sent the promises and he fulfilled the promises. And, and as you recall, in verse 5, it says, that faith we have is protected by that same power of God that raised Jesus. And the word is not from the edge of death, but out from the actual dead condition. He was in his flesh, in his human body, he was dead. And God raised him out and gave him new life. See, that's the promise we have. He's going to raise us out and give us a whole new life. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you now as we look at these next passages that you would um, cause our spirit inside of us to come alive, to receive that, to ponder it, and then to to bring it in and embrace it. Lord, uh, questions are great. We understand you really are a God who allows questions. But you don't deal with defiance. You don't deal with rebellion. So we want, Lord, to, to... Set that aside, and, uh, and give us honest questions if they're there. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Forge family, this is an allergy week for me, so forgive me. I may um, blow my nose, and I may even sneeze on you here, but we're going forward. Uh-uh. All right, let's begin in First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and it says, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is just a a word picture that Peter uses um, because in the um, ancient Near East, men wore long flowing robes. Okay, It, It meant that they could be cooler in the midday in the sun and they could be warmer when it's cold and windy depending on how they arrange those robes around them. But, if they had to get up and run, if they had to get up and fight, they would gather up those long robes and tie them or tuck them into a wide belt that was worn around the waist. And, and so there's that picture of girding up your loins. You just lift it and tie it up so you have freedom to run and move quickly. Now, this is talking about the mind. It's not talking about the body. And so he says, gird up your mind. So you gather up the loose ends of your thoughts and you focus them. You bring them under your control. You want your thoughts to be focused on what it is that Peter is saying and what Jesus has already accomplished for you. <clears throat> and and secondly, uh, he calls us to be sober. Now, this in the New Testament, this is always used metaphorically. It doesn't talk about being being alcoholic. It doesn't talk about being blitzed by <clears throat> by what you're drinking. <clears throat> Instead. This sobriety, if you will, is really a stability. It's sound, balanced, you know, a condition in your spirit. Now, this last week I got an email uh, early one day from a friend who's a recent widow, and she'd been exposed to a website. Um, And the contents of that website and the claims of that website that the scriptures had been tampered with, that there'd been deletions, there'd been additions to the scriptures, and the Bible—all the Bibles had been changed. That really shook her up, and she sent out an email. And um, so I—I I, I looked at the, the reference, and I—I I took out some of my study books, and and I went, "Well, it's here and it's there, but it seems like this is a bigger deal than than um, it's not a big deal." <clears throat> And uh, it it was fascinating to me that within a couple of hours, a second email followed from her, and she was moving rapidly toward that sober, stable, sound, balanced spirit mind. She said, I just didn't have Arthur around to talk me through all this, and it it just bothered me, but over that period of hours, my sense was she moved in her inner spirit toward Stability toward getting her thoughts back focused on what it belonged on. And I was proud of her. She did a good job with that. You know, the story's not over yet, but you know, that that quick turnaround is exactly what Peter's talking about here. And then, thirdly, in this passage, she says, fix your fix or set your hope on grace. And it's this grace that's coming to you. God promises that His resources are going to come and be poured out on you. Now He says at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, these believers and Peter believed that any day Jesus was returning, and they expected Him to Jesus to come and pour out heaven's resources for their needs. at that moment, well, that's two thousand years ago, nearly. And yet, that prayer, if you will, of, you know, that business of setting and fixing your hope on the grace that is to come, God's resources at Christ's expense, that's, that's the grace of God, that is available to us and poured out through us through the kingdom of God as we come before the king and we say, Father, here's an opportunity for the kingdom. Father, here's an attack that's on the kingdom. Father, and though, then, the, then the resources begin to flow. All right, let's read verse 14. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. <clears throat> now, here's, here's a situation where it's a, it's a Hebrew idiom, okay? <clears throat> um, Peter, in the, in, the, in the Greek, it says, Obedient children. It literally is children of obedience in the text. And he's saying, <clears throat> you guys have made a whole bunch of right choices because obedience is of critical import. He's already talked about being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus toward the point of of, of obedience. But if you go back, if you turn back to your former lust, to the former way of living before you came to Jesus you would go back to the habits and the mannerisms and the dress and the speech expressions and the behaviors of those who were lost those who were who, who just didn't know Jesus in their ignorance okay So, you know, the exhortation here is don't go back to being incognito. Don't go back into the culture around you so you don't look any different, sound any different, smell any different. You know, you just you're just part of the the herd. Okay? So that there's no difference between you and the world. Now, Peter's writing these things to, to those. Those believers who've been scattered through the towns, scattered through the regions in Asia Minor. But he's writing to us as well by Holy Spirit and saying, don't act in ignorance. Don't go back to what you you were clinging to before. Now, William Barclay is a, is a commentator who periodically has very insightful stuff. And I have some things I want to just read out of. I did, it was so good, I just decided not to condense it. I'm going to read it to you. And this is under his title of what's called the Christless life. <clears throat> he said, it is the life of ignorance. He's referring to verse 14 there. The pagan world was always haunted by the unknowability of God. At best, men could not, excuse me, men could but grope after this mystery. It, quote, it is hard, said Plato, to investigate and to find the framer and the father of the universe... And if you did find him, it would be impossible to express him in terms that we would all understand, unquote. Even for the philosopher, to find God is difficult. And for the ordinary man, to understand him is impossible. Aristotle spoke of God as the supreme cause, the supreme mover, if you will, by all men dreamed of, and by no man known. The ancient world did not doubt that there was a god or gods, but it believed that such gods as there were were quite unknowable and totally uninterested in men and the universe. In a world without Christ, God was mystery and power, but never love. There was no one to whom men could raise their hands for help or their eyes for hope. And then second, he says... The Christless life is a life that's dominated by desire. Now, in this case, it's powerful, it's shifted over to lust. And it's just just like, oh, I'm sure I'd like some of that. It's really, I've got to have that. Okay. As we read the records of what the world into which Christianity came, we cannot but be appalled at the sheer fleshliness of life within it. There was desperate poverty at the lower end of the social scale, but at the top, We read of banquets that cost thousands of dollars, millions of dollars in in, in modern money, where peacock's brains and nightingale's tongues were served, and where the emperor Vitellius set on the table at one banquet, 2,000 fish and 7,000 birds. Chastity was forgotten. Marshall is one of the writers. He speaks of a woman who had reached her 10th husband, juvenile, writes of a woman who had eight husbands in five years and jerome tells us that in rome there was one woman who was married to her 23rd husband she herself being his 21st wife both in greece and in rome homosexual practices were so common that they had to come that they had come to be looked on as natural it was a world mastered by desire whose aim was to find newer and wilder ways of gratifying its lusts. And then thirdly, Barclay says, the Christless life is a life characterized by futility. Its basic trouble was that it was not going anywhere. If a man was to die like a dog, why should he not live like a dog? Life was a futile business with a few brief years in the light of the sun and then an eternal nothingness. There was nothing for which to live and nothing for which to die. Life must always be futile when there's nothing on the other side of death. So, Forge family, here, here's, this, is, this was a snapshot of the culture into which Peter walked, bearing with him the testimony about the risen Christ, and the message that he gave. So he said, don't go back to that stuff. That's what you came out of. That's the surrounding culture. Plato and Aristotle laid the philosophical base, the argument, you know, at a philosophical level. What is the meaning of life? And then the morals were totally in disarray. And lastly, there was no hope. There was no future. You just go for all the gusto in this life, and then, boop, you're done. See, we're still surrounded by that, in the culture that we live in, now in verses fifteen and sixteen it says, you know, having you know your obedient children, don't be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But verse fifteen says, but like the holy one who called you, be holy also. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it's written, "You shall be holy, for I am holy." And here you know peter's quoting leviticus 11 okay leviticus is the old testament book that talks about holiness more than any other text of scripture uh, excuse me <clears throat> and in verse 15 he says like the holy one who called you remember god called you from before time he knew you in your mother's womb he called you out okay he, the holy one called you but he called you to be holy yourselves in all your behavior, in all your all the way you walk out life. Now, the word holy means pure, okay? Absolutely, unquestionably, irrevocably pure. But it also is translated as the word other, that God in his holiness is so different from fallen creation, fallen man, that when he comes, he is so other in power and purity, that he comes and touches, touches earth and things burn up. He's just absolutely different. And that's what we're called to be. Okay? <clears throat> now in verse 16, it talks about, you know, this prophetic thing. It says it's a command, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He, he, God was speaking to the people of Israel saying, because of who I am, that's what you're going to be. And he's using a future tense. There's a promise in the middle of that. That's a prophetic statement. <clears throat> now, in Matthew 4, verses 4, 7, and 10, we, get, we, we need to deal with this passage because it says here, verse 16, because it is written. Okay, Peter goes back. He, he, he calls up this memory of his and the knowledge of the scriptures because it is written. It stands written. But see, that's exactly the phrasing. That's exactly the words that Jesus used when he was 40 days in the wilderness, recorded in Matthew chapter 4. And it says he had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, Ah, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And Jesus answered and said, It is Written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into into the holy city and he stood him on the pinnacle of of the temple and he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he shall give his angels charge concerning you and on their hands they shall bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. See, even Satan recognizes the authority of the scriptures, but he bends it and twists it. And yet Jesus, recognizing that, comes back and says to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Literally fall down and kiss me. Then Jesus said, "Be gone, for it is written." See, in each of these times, Jesus he doesn't he doesn't have to defend himself at all. He simply presents what has already been spoken and stands written. It rendered Satan unable to tempt Jesus. Okay, it disarms him. It's not a defense. It's it's simply a disarming of Satan and his power. The authority of the word renders Satan unable to tempt. So when you're in a situation where it's just coming at you hard, strong, and what you're supposed to do is what Jesus did. And what what Peter's writing about, he says, it is written. And, And the word of God comes up inside of you, and with it comes authority and the power of God. And the tempter is no longer able. He's rendered unable to tempt you. Now, again, we go back to that business of be holy in all your behavior. Okay, that's because it's written, and that's because the Holy One said it of you. Now, the the be holy construction here in the Greek is this is not a state of being. You're not kind of coming into a state of being, being holy, of going oh, la 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 la. la. Give me a harp. Give me a cloud to sit on. That's not what he's talking about. It's a verb that describes becoming. It's a process in which you can look back over your shoulder and you can see progress. You can say, you know what? That stuff that used to bite me and hound me and nibble around the edges, that has gone. That doesn't affect me any longer. I am becoming holy. So here, you know, here you have two things. You have a call to obedience. Remember verse 14? As obedient children. See, obedience is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is holiness. And you say, oh, Lord, I want to be holy. And the Lord's response is, turn the coin over. You want holiness? You be obedient to what is known in the scriptures, to what I told you to do. What was the last thing I told you to do? Go back and do that. So you don't strive, oh, I want to be holy, I want to be holy, you strive, no, what you labor into peacefully, patiently, by faith is, I choose to be obedient. Now, verses 17 and 18 says, and if you address God, okay, and if you address his Father, the one who partially and partially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay upon the earth, knowing that you are are not redeemed from perishable things with perishable things like gold or silver from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers okay seven verse 17 18 says since it isn't if you call on the lord it's since you are calling on him and when you do that you address him you pray to him you long come into his presence you honor him you worship him so you know verse 17 if you address him In any fashion, as the one who impartially judges according to each man's work. So what's being spoken of here is the fact that as we move in obedience, more of Jesus fills our hearts. More of the Holy Spirit empowers us. And the question here is not a salvation issue. Okay? This is, this is worth. it says that God impartially judges according to each man's work. This is not salvation. That's already del- been dealt with. Okay? This is not a sin issue. This is not a picture of God who's looking and picking at all the possible ways you failed. Uh-uh. That's not the sense of the text. But what this judgment includes is, what did you do with my son, Jesus, in this situation, in that one? You know, when you got that phone call, when you were yelled at in traffic, when somebody honked their horn and and waved at you in in an obscene manner. Okay, how did you respond to that? Okay, that's what this judgment is all about. See, but to his sons and his daughters, that's us, okay, his impartial judgment is one of honest appraisal. Actions, attitudes, and thoughts. See, the heart of God is always with his children. As is his love, okay? And it go it, it goes out to him in a spirit of love. So when you run into this business of being judged, okay, the point of the judgment is so that you will be approved. Verse 18 talks about, you know, you're you're a situation in which you were redeemed from the perishable thing, You know, not with perishable things. You weren't bought out of the slave market of sin with gold or silver. That's passing away. You were redeemed. You were rescued with the precious blood of Jesus. And that accomplished what? You were removed from and separated from a futile, empty, void, vain way of life that you inherited. Now, I have to say as well here, because um, God doesn't have any grandchildren. Okay? Each individual has to come face-to-face with Jesus. And that void, void, vain, empty, futile way of life might have been highly religious. It might have been Bible-belt Christianity. It might have been... You know, where you, you know, you did, you checked all the boxes, you got all the brownie points, you joined all the clubs, you memorized all the scripture, but it never made its way out into the marketplace. You know, it's a private thing, it's down in your heart. Yeah, yeah, I know all that stuff. You know, but where the life of Jesus Christ never penetrated to the point of saying, Jesus is Lord. And you may have inherited that way of life, from previous generations. So this isn't just about, oh man, I left all my pagan roots. You may have left your supposedly, quote, Christian ways as well. Verse 19 says, you weren't redeemed, you weren't rescued with gold or silver, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So this is the second time in this passage, starting back um, in the first couple of verses, that speaks about the, the sprinkling of the blood, where all the, God, the, God had Moses read out the law of what was required of the people of Israel to be in covenant with God. And then the people responded. They lifted up their hands and they said, we will do all these things. They agreed verbally. We are with it. We're going to embrace this covenant package. At that point, a sacrifice had been given. Some of it was on the altar. Some of it was in a bowl. And with that bowl of blood, Moses had sprinkled the people unto obedience. Now, here, you know, you've got the Passover lamb, the picture of the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice. Okay? Now... John the Baptist had described Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that's exactly what Peter's focusing on here. It was that precious blood that got us out of a futile, slave-like life in which we served darkness. And in so doing, God made you, The believers in Asia Minor, and God made us acceptable to God because we're covered by the blood of Jesus. Now, Forge family, some of us were ransomed from futile, empty lives. Okay, and we heard last week from the testimony from Stephanie that you know when she was four years old, her her mom talked to her about Jesus, and she said, "Oh yes, I want Jesus to come into my heart." Okay, and she she said, "I have walked after Jesus." all my life okay so some of us come from feudal backgrounds and some of us just grew up and embraced jesus in the heart but in both cases there was the need for the blood of jesus to pay the penalty for sin and to bring us into his presence in both cases the feudal empty lives and those of us who grew up in Christian households and at an early age said, Yes, I want that. Okay, in both cases, we're we're called to obedience. Now, sometimes it's a whole lot easier for those who know what they're fleeing from to be obedient to what's new. And it's harder for some of us who are raised in Christian homes and Christian churches, it's harder to be obedient to the to the to what the Lord says to do. In both cases, we're called to be holy, to be set apart, to be pure, to be other. In both cases, life choices, the acts, the thoughts, and the attitudes are held up to the scrutiny of a loving father who judges and judges for the purpose of approval. Forge family, you've been sown into jobs, into schools and clubs and neighborhoods among the lost people around you. And they're living futile lives. They don't have any borders or benchmarks for their moral activity. They just go with what media says is the new normal. The problem is the new normal is a slippery slope, and they're going more and more deviant as they go. Okay? And some of those people that you're surrounded with have no hope. And so when life happens hard... They have nothing to raise their eyes to. They have no one to raise their hands to. So we are called by Paul in Philippians chapter 2. We are called to shine like stars. Brilliant points of light set against a black background. Honestly, that might be the background in in some churches I know. Okay? Okay. To shine, if you find your light is now dimmed, if you find somehow that you feel tarnished, if you're just kind of going, gosh, that ain't working for me, run to Jesus. His precious blood cleanses from all sin and stain. His blood is the highest surfactant in the universe, in all of creation. Nothing resists the cleansing work of Jesus when we come and say, Oh, Jesus, I agree with you. That sin. Please forgive me. And it washes us clean and makes us new and whole. All right, Ford's family. Put this on your heart. Walk around. Maybe listen to it two or three times to get this down into your heart. God bless you. I love you. We'll see you soon.